Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, I interview Grace Rink, Chief Climate Officer for the City and County of Denver, who also leads the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resiliency. She's more well-known in micromobility, however, as the head of the Denver e-bike subsidy program, which has captured the imagination of both regulators and micromobility firms all the world over, with the latest program rebates selling out in mere minutes. Today, we talk about how she ended up in Denver, why the program was formed and its objectives, and the implications of what they're finding. This felt like an important interview. I think that subsidies and government support are something that micromobility has traditionally eschewed in favor of just doing it. But there are more and more cities, states, and countries around the world realizing that the bang for buck on these vehicles is substantially higher than we'd get for other transport climate policies. We talk through the newly launched subsidy tracker that Micromobility Industries has just launched, which tracks all the subsidies for e-bikes, scooters, and more globally. We're very excited about it, and I think it can be an important tool going forward. Check it out in the show notes. We also run through other schemes of government support for end consumers looking to use micromobility and how to make micromobility support nonpartisan. If you are a policymaker who is looking into this, welcome. I hope that you enjoy this conversation and it inspires you to push for a similar policy in your jurisdiction. If you have a desire to develop better materials for you or folks like you on how to best do this that we can host on the Micromobility Industries website, please reach out to me and the team. We'd love to hear from you as we want to see more of this happen around the world. And now, here's Grace. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Grace Rink. How are you today, Grace? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, and uh, this is uh, this has been a long time coming. I've been very excited to have you uh, have you come on. So, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Most welcome. Well, look, uh, I think maybe what we should start off with is just a little bit about yourself and what you do, and then I, and then I'm keen to understand the kind of the story of how you got there as well, because I always think that that's a, a interesting context. So, yeah, maybe you want to take us through what you're doing at the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency. Sure. Um, So I am the Chief Climate Officer for the City and County of Denver, Colorado, and that also makes me the Executive Director of the Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency. And just in case I use the acronym, we call it CASER. Um, We have a lot of acronyms in city government. And um, actually, as of March 16th, I will have been here in in this role for three years. Yep. Very exciting. I started on a very illustrious date, March 16th of 2020. Yes. What else is happening then? (laughs) It was great. But my first day was orientation. My second day was uh, I got my computer, Perfect. and on my third day they sent me home. Yeah, so. and my ho- and home was my sister in law's basement because I had just moved here from Chicago. Oh wow! So it was yeah. quite a start. Yep, yep, yep. Excellent. We've come a long way. Yeah, We've come a long way since then. <laughs> and how did you how did you even get into like so the sustainability role? Like I know uh, a bunch of cities have those, but how did you end up specifically in in that role? That is a really good question. I was very happy in Chicago. I'm from the Midwest. I've, I've always lived on the Great Lakes. So high in the world, I moved to Denver, right? Other than it's a beautiful place. And yes, of course. Wonderful place to live. So there I was in Chicago. I'd been in the sustainability world for, at this point, almost 25 years. Yeah. And it was actually an interesting time in Chicago in summer of 2019. Our Department of Environment, where I had previously worked, had been dismantled during the recession uh, as a cost-saving measure. And over the years, you know, the work just kind of dissipated. It wasn't getting done in quite as strong a way as many people would want it to have seen. And in uh, 2019, when there was a new mayoral election at the time, it sounded like there was a lot of interest in bringing that department back. And I was no longer working for the city. I was running my own sustainability consulting firm. And I had this moment where I said, I want to run it. Yes, bring it back. And I would love to run that. So then a new mayor was elected. I was on the transition team for the environment. Uh, It seemed really hopeful. And then the budget came out in the early fall and it became really clear that the city just had so many other things it was dealing with. It wasn't going to be able to create a new agency. And I had this moment and I call it a career epiphany, actually. I had this moment 
where I said, well, if what I want to do is run a department of environment, I should go do that. Yes. And just to see what else was out there, just at the beginning of research, I typed sustainability into a job search engine and with no location. And this job in Denver was posted and I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, wow. I said, you gotta be kidding me. Like a climate office in Denver, yeah. right when I'm looking for it. Yeah. And uh, so I threw my hat in the ring and here we are. Yeah. Amazing. That's really how it came. So yeah, we, uh, I mean, uh, pulled up stakes, left behind everyone and everything that we know in uh, Chicago and came out here to Denver. Marvelous. And, and tell me a bit about this office, because I think yeah, one thing that as I was doing the research for this, that struck me is that this office has its own sales tax or equivalent to a sales tax. So there's a in, inside of the city that effectively funds it. So it's not quite as subject to the, the vagaries of other budget setting processes. Would that, would that be accurate? Yeah, it really is uh, amazing. So uh, this is a quick primer for everybody who's not from here, because I, even I coming here from Illinois, didn't understand that this is the case. In Colorado, no unit of government can raise taxes on its own. All taxes must be voted on by the people. And then you pair with that, that it's actually not that difficult to get an initiative on the ballot. The number of signatures that are needed is just not too significant. <laughs> and so... In the fall of 2020, and it was actually, this one was not a citizen-led ballot initiative. This was actually um, forwarded by the Climate Action Task Force, which was run by our office, which is a group of 25 external stakeholders representing, you know, all of Denver. They made the recommendation to city council that there should be a 0.25% sales tax to fund our office, to do the real work of climate action at a scale that really is not possible with just regular city, you know, general obligation bond funding or general fund funding. And again, let's take ourselves back to the fall of 2020. You remember the economic hardship that everybody was having? Yep. And it probably wasn't until about three or four weeks before the election in November when we all looked at each other and we said, I think this thing's going to pass. Yeah, wow. I mean, it just didn't seem like the time when people would have the appetite for a new tax at a time when people were hurting so much. But I think that at the same time, climate was so clearly an issue. Yeah. And this fund, the way that the ballot initiative was written, it was exceedingly clear that at least half of the money raised by this fund needed to benefit directly the people and communities that are most harmed by climate change impacts, which of course at that time, it was well known that these are the same people and communities most harmed by COVID, most harmed by a lack of access to healthcare and so many other inequities that really made a very compelling case. Yeah, interesting. And so the tax passed and that meant that in starting January 1st of 2021, we were now collecting those dollars. It was estimated to raise $40 million a year for our office. Yeah. And actually in that first year, it raised $41.3 We actually don't have the final figures for 2022 yet, but we think it's at least $45 million. Wow. Amazing. So, yeah. it's a, uh, so, so you have obviously a decent amount of budget to play with. I want to go into the, the part that everybody knows about, which is I, you know, I have had so many questions of like, can you get Grace Rank on that podcast and talk to her about it? Because when people talk about e-bike subsidies, Denver is held up as sort of the example of, of how to do this well. So can you talk me through a little bit about broadly what you spend your money on, but then how did you end up picking e-bike subsidies? And then let's go into how that works. Sure. Of course. Well, first off, the way that the fund was structured in the ballot initiative dictates how we're allowed to spend the money. Right. So there are six allowable uses uh, for this $40 million. Workforce development, renewables and battery storage systems, energy efficiency in buildings and homes, sustainable transportation, and obviously I'll come back to that one, community scale, climate adaptation and resiliency, uh, and environmental justice. So those are the six categories in which we're allowed to spend these dollars. So going to sustainable mobility, you know, take $40 million and spread it across six categories, you're not going to be left with a whole lot of money when it comes to transportation, right? Transportation projects are expensive. Even just one mile of protected bike lane can cost a million dollars. So 
you know, that kind of work, that the big I infrastructure is handled by our Department of Transportation and Infrastructure here in the city. And so we were not going to be taking over the determination of where bike lanes go or installing bike lanes. Um, Denver does not have its own transit system. So we weren't going to be, you know, funding new bus lines or anything like that. That's handled by another regional transportation agency. But our agency already had a niche carved out in electrified transportation. So we are the agency that determines where electric vehicle charging stations need to go. We actually get them installed on city property. We work with private landowners to determine if, you know, electric vehicle charging is right for their property as well. And we certainly had an interest in e-bikes. And so you recall again that our fund started raising money in 2021. Mm-hmm. That previous fall in 2020, our state, or it's the Colorado Energy Office, they actually ran a pilot program where they provided electric bikes to essential workers. So these are folks whose mass transit routes had been curtailed during the pandemic, but these are the folks who we really needed to make sure that they could get to work. So that was a statewide program and it was a pilot. And we thought that was a brilliant idea. So as soon as we had the opportunity, they went out to bid again. We joined them in their bid. And so we actually created two e-bike libraries for essential workers in two of our lower income communities. So in that case, we were working with nonprofit organizations. Between them, they had 70 e-bikes. And unlike the bike sharing program where you use your uh, an app on your phone and sure. you, it, it's enabled with your credit card, and that's how you, know, you, you take a bike in and out as you need it, these are like real libraries where a person could be issued a bike for weeks at a time mm-hmm. where they could use it on their own. They could determine if this is the right type of mobility device for them. And then the host organization would provide them with all the services that they might need to understand how to use a bike, um, any actual repair services they might need. That was our first foray into e-bikes. And it was it, it was very successful and it's still operating now and we're looking to expand it. So then we just had to think, you know, well, how do we get more into the market? Well, I mentioned the Climate Action Task Force from 2020. They provided us with a over 100-page report full of recommendations of all the things that Denver needed to do to get more into climate action, to like take real action on it, not so much just writing plans anymore. And they had micromobility devices as one of the recommendations. And so there's there's different ways that cities can enable that, right? Whether you're working through a contract and making sure that the access to those devices gets out to more communities or actually providing them directly. And so that's what we started building on. So we built on our experience with the e-bike libraries. We built on the recommendations of our Climate Action Task Force. And then we built on what we already know works, which is rebates, right? There's a lot of rebates in the energy efficiency space for our homes for different types of devices. And so we just simply built on that with e-bikes. And I would say the rest is history, but that's what we're here to talk about. Well, exactly. That is what we're here to talk about. And let's ride that history. So what happened? Okay, so... First, we had to go to a contract. Yeah. So as a, as a city agency, we can't get money out to people unless we have a contract with a third-party provider in, you know, in one way or another. So that took us a couple of months to get that RFP out and actually get that under contract. That was done by, I would say, the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. And so we started working right away on a series of of rebates. One category was e-bikes. We did also have a category for home energy rebates, but we can talk about that on on another podcast. (laughs) So the e-bike rebate program launched on Earth Day. We had a big push to make sure that happened. That was a Friday. Yes. And, you know, we're a government agency. We are not a marketing juggernaut. Yeah. Uh, we got the word out. We put out a press release. We had a website. We put it out on our social. Uh, But you just never know who's really going to hear about it. Um, how are people going to hear about this program and, and when the when people would start applying? So I said it, we launched on a Friday. Yeah. By Tuesday, we had over 3,000 applications. That's and amazing. And that, that was the maximum number that we thought we might run through, it, not even in a full year, right? Yeah. And that was for $400 for e-bike purchases. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. So the standard, the standard rebate is $400. Yeah. And you have to be a Dem- resident of the city and county of Denver to apply. We also had an income qualified rebate. That's $1,200. So again, you have to be a resident of Denver, but also then provide documentation of your income. And we aligned with what's called the AMI table. That's the area median income. Yep. And so it's scaled. It's a scaled uh, table. So it depends on the number of people in your household as well as your income. And we actually received about equal numbers of applications in both categories. 
And then you also, uh, my understanding is you also had additional $500 for the cargo bike, if folks were doing cargo bikes as well. Oh, that's right. So we had an adder. It was like an add-on. So yep. if in, in either case, whether you were using a standard voucher or the uh, income qualified voucher, if you were going to purchase an e-cargo bike, you would get an additional $500 on top of that. Excellent. So yeah, all that launched in April. And, you know, we had planned on, we knew that we would relaunch again because we knew that not 100% of the people who received a voucher would actually use them. It's just how it works, right? Yeah. People might go shopping and then they decide an e-bike's not for them, or they might kind of forget that they have it. I mean, that happens too, or they just decide they just don't want to do it. So we were able to relaunch again in July. And so we did, we actually launched the program every month. So April and then July, August, September, October, November, each with successively fewer numbers of vouchers available. But in total in 2022, almost 5,000 people got e-bikes through our voucher program. Yeah. Amazing. So all up, what, about $5 million worth of spend? No, I think it was closer to 3 million. Yeah. But yeah, a little over that. So 3 million on spend on your side. And just on our side, right? Yeah. So it's been what a tremendous boon it's been for the uh, bike shops, right? Because we only allow brick and mortar stores within five miles of the city of Denver to participate, and that that boundary is actually really important. Normally, we would have wanted to limit it to only bike shops in the city of Denver, mm-hmm. but when we looked at our city, it, we determined that there were parts of the city, especially I think the northwest area, where if we only allowed bike shops in the city, they wouldn't have one within five miles. They'd have to travel too far. And so we went a little bit outside of the city boundary in order to allow that. But it still requires brick and mortar store participation. And so it's been, I think, an economic boon for those shops as well. Totally. And and then for the bricks and mortar specifically, why did you go for a bricks and mortar approach as opposed to for exact? Because I know that there's a lot of bikes you can just now buy a buy online, like you know, the electric bikes or the red power bikes or any of these other bikes. That's right. There are many, many direct-to-consumer manufacturers and people can buy their e-bikes online. And for some people, that might be a really excellent choice. However, we found very, very quickly and frankly, through some experience of our own, just as e-bike owners here in our agency, you cannot get your e-bike service mm-hmm. if you do not buy it at a shop. Mm-hmm. And there are things that go wrong with e-bikes just as there are for regular bikes. But bike shops are generally, that we have found, not willing to work on bikes that they don't sell out of fear of violating, of avoiding warranties. Yes. And also a lot of times those bikes come uh, to your house unassembled. You've got to put it together yourself. People, you know, Consumers are using this product that they've never used before. And then there's no one there to help them. Uh, The warranties also aren't very good. Yes. Right? There's pretty much once you get the bike, as soon as you put it together, it's yours. And uh, if anything goes wrong, that's too bad. And so we think that from a consumer protection perspective, uh, for we as government, we need to be supporting the type of service that we want people to be able to get. And they can really only get that through our local brick and mortar shops. Excellent. I will say that because of that requirement, uh, there was at least one large retailer to be – or manufacturer, which I shall not name, yes. uh, which decided to open a brick and mortar store within our boundary area. <laughs> Doesn't Red Power Bike have now a brick and mortar store in Denver? It does. Yeah. <laughs> within our within less than five miles of the boundary of the city. That's marvelous to hear. Yes. Well, look, th- th- that's fascinating. And so the uh, I can hear you about the motivations and like clearly you, you, you were building on lots of research. And then I know that you've now done some surveys. So can you talk me through the impacts that you've seen, the outcomes of those who have purchased those bikes? Yeah, I think as soon as, almost as soon as we had the, the rebate offered, folks wanted to know, well, how are people using the bikes? And are they using the bikes? And are they reselling the bikes? And are they reselling the vouchers? And all these things. And, you know, we needed to give folks a little bit of time to actually use their e-bikes. And so in the fall of 2022, we issued a survey to everybody who actually used the voucher. And we had a 35% response rate, which for surveys is statistically significant, shall Mm -hmm. we say. So we felt pretty good about that response rate. We found that on average, folks are biking at least 26 miles per week on their e-bike. They're replacing three to four car trips per week. And interestingly, folks who have the income qualified voucher are biking significantly farther or significantly more frequently than the folks with the standard rebate. Now, we're not judging that in any way, but it's an interesting statistic, I think. So we're very happy about that. I think, you know, people often ask, is this actually going to have an impact on air quality? And, you know, I, I guess I neglected to mention that when you asked about motivation. In Denver, 
30% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the transportation sector. Yeah. And we also know that uh, the majority of commute trips in Denver are less than five miles. And most 70% of our commutes are a person driving alone in their car. Yes. So you stack all those things together and an e-bike can really make an impact once we get it up to scale, right? So here we had, you know, 4,700 plus people got e-bikes in the first year. As we continue to grow that, there might really be a, a measurable impact, a positive impact on air quality in our region. Yes. Well, that's certainly the thesis that we have about why micromobility is yep. interesting. So obviously you're calculating trips via surveys. Have you had any other things like, do you have bike counters or anything else where you could kind of look at standard levels of what the biking was in Denver before versus now? That's a really good question. So we as an agency don't have that, but I have a feeling that there are, first off, our Department of Transportation does do transportation, like travel counts. Yep. So I don't know that we have that data yet. I would think that maybe given another year, we might be able to see an impact. So far, we're only just getting our data by communicating directly with the people who got our e-bikes. But of course, that doesn't count all the other people in town who have acquired e-bikes in the past year just from the interest that's been drummed up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm actually, in a way, I'm one of those. So I, I inherited my e-bike or I had it passed down to me from my father-in-law who decided he didn't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but my bike, my e-bike's not counted in that, right, in that number. So No, of course. Yeah, yeah I think that. I was going to say, we just need more of the, we need more of the citywide data, not just the data from the people who use our vouchers. And that's, yeah, that's exactly it. That I mean, the other thing as well, that's kind of interesting, I think, generally, is that e-bike sales in the US have just been exploding. Like, and, and I think it's incredibly fascinating. Like, there's a number of bikes that are launching now. Like, so just to give you context, there was a, there was a company, Electric, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and they didn't sell any bikes in 2019. Uh, they they had a model and they they were like we think with this model is going to be interesting. I think maybe they sold eight thousand bikes in 2019, mm-hmm. 2020, 2021, 2022. They sold one hundred and fifty thousand bikes. Wow! And they're all electric and they they're D to C, so they probably they wouldn't qualify for yours. I know the I know the company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they do have a lot of bikes sold in Denver for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I see them. But and 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 this is the thing, right? I can see that there's just a, like a huge amount of uh, there are you're you're on on kind of this other trend, but. There's an interesting question there for me about, you know, the, I imagine there was a bit of pushback, like these bikes aren't that expensive. Why don't you, you know, I, I know that there's pushback from a number of um, people in the, in the conversation. We have that here in New Zealand, people saying, oh, look, e-bikes aren't that expensive. Why, why on earth would we subsidize them? Can, can you go through a little bit about the rationale around why a subsidy or why the rebate element? Sure. Um, I don't think anybody here in, I certainly have never had a conversation with anyone who said e-bikes are not expensive. Oh, right. Okay. Everybody, everybody here thinks that they're very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. why would anybody ever buy an e-bike? And so, yeah, I think that it was very clear that because of the price point, you know, compared to a regular bike or compared to no bike, a minimum of $1,500, right, for an entry-level uh, e-bike is pretty steep for most people. Even if they have the money, people just look at that like, why would I pay that much for a bike when when as adults, so many of us are accustomed to just your, you know, standard, I guess we call them analog bikes now, right? Yes. Or unplugged. Acoustic. Or acoustic, acoustic <laughs> bikes. So, but it, by comparison, they're very expensive. They are expensive. And then when you get into, you know, the next level up, you know, you're looking at $2,500, $3,500. And the e-cargo bikes are at least that, right? Yeah. I think people can get very intimidated and put off by that price. What I think is really interesting is that the $400 voucher doesn't really, I don't think it makes an e-bike more affordable, but what it did was it got people off the fence, Yeah. right? It got people who were thinking about an e-bike and interested in it and say, oh, I'll go get an e-bike now. Sure. They're like, I'll take that $400 and I'll go buy an e-bike. But that $1,200 voucher truly made e-bikes affordable for many, many people. I mean, we had, we, for our program launched in April from April through December, there was a $500 decrease in the average price of e-bikes in Denver and or purchased through our program. And that's because more of the lower cost retailers came into the space, whether they were working, whether that's bike shops who are sourcing them or, you know, retailers who moved into the area. And those, so if a person's paying zero to $300 out of pocket for an e-bike, that's affordable. And yes. I think that's, that was a, huge motivator for us and i think is a huge motivator for the consumers as well like have you done any research looking at it and going as a 
climate. I mean, I know it wasn't only emissions reduction as the kind of primary thing. It was also like, there was other elements to it as well, right? Sustainable transport and you have other outcomes that you're looking for in terms of being able to make it equitable in terms of the transition. But have you looked at sort of a per dollar cost of emissions reduction for the e-bike rebate program versus, for example, like the fee bait that goes to... That's a really good question. We are working on that. I don't have that to give you now, but yeah. And I think the fund that we have, we call it, it's called the Climate Protection Fund. There are some requirements in the ordinance that created it on reporting. And so uh, our next annual report will come out June 30th of this year. And that's where you're going to see our first, the first accounting that we're still trying to figure out, you know, how do we show, how do we demonstrate exactly that cost, right? What is the cost per, per greenhouse gas emissions reduced, right? And it varies so much by program. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, I think the cost per GHG reduced on this program on e-bikes is probably fairly low, whereas the GHG per, you know, dollar per GHG reduced on a solar project may be much higher. Electrification in residential might be much higher. And I think that's what we're grappling with now is I think people want to see just a single figure, like an average. And I don't know, I don't know that that communicates the impact effectively. So we are studying that. You'll have to have me back in June to tell you about it. (laughs) Okay. Happy to work out how to have that conversation. Yeah, I think there's obviously it's just I think the in particular one that I'm interested in is the the conversation of how does it compare between a seven thousand five hundred dollar rebate that goes towards a car versus a you know four hundred dollar rebate that goes towards an e bike. Now I know you're not going to replace all trips, right? So this is this is a thing. But if you were to say I assume you do twenty or thirty percent of the trips that you would otherwise do, but you do it on an e bike and then you use your car for the rest of that, that's fine. But is there a way that we could say, and actually Rocky Mountain Institute has been doing a, a bunch of research on this. And, and, and the big thing that they found is that if you, if you just bought an e-bike and you didn't replace your car, so you didn't get an EV, but you still used your car, you know, for the long trips, but you used an e-bike for the short trips. Actually, that is like the biggest thing you can do from an, uh, from an emissions reduction perspective, because there's just so much built in, uh, there's so much of the kind of like, um, what the name of it, forgive me, I've forgotten the name embedded emissions in the production of the vehicle yep. for both EVs and for standard cars that just simply holding onto a car for a longer period of time and buying this really small little vehicle um, can make a massive difference to to your per your emissions. Sure. I can say that we have not done that level of research. I mean, I think we do look to organizations like RMI for that, for that level of introspection. I will say though, you know, you, you mentioned the $7,500 tax or rebate, and of course it's not, right? It's a tax credit. Yes. And so a person only gets to take advantage of that if they owe taxes. Yes. And so that's, it really skews the the market towards, who, you know, who that's aimed at. Whereas the e-bike program, it is much more equitable by design, right? So whether you pay taxes or not, whether you're a homeowner and you can deduct your, you know, your mortgage from your taxes, none of that matters. Even like there's even young people, there were a couple, we definitely had some parents reach out who wanted to purchase e-bikes for their high school students because their kids go to a school that's further away and their bus service is unreliable and so on. So like, again, you know, they would never be able to take advantage of a program like this or, you know, like a, a tax credit for a car. And so, yeah, I hear you on the embodied carbon. That is an interesting level of study. I think, again, we would look to RMI for that. But I think, again, in comparing tax credits in general to what is essentially for us actually a prebate, right? Because people get the voucher and it actually takes the costs off the top from what they're purchasing. They don't have to spend the whole amount up front and then get it rebated back to them later. I think it reaches a lot more people than a tax credit would ever reach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. No, no. I mean, hats off to you in that regard. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I may, if I, if I may use this opportunity to, to actually talk about, so we got very excited once we saw your program roll out. And obviously there's been many, many programs roll out around the world. Um, Europe actually has had a, a number of these programs running for, for a while. And so uh, the team at Micromobility Industries got together and we said, let's build a big global tracker for this. And so we now track every single subsidy that we know of that's around the world all in one place. And so that's just gone live last week. But I, I think it's examples of that, you know, like how to end working out we're, we're going to overlay and uh, at the moment we're just building the system, but overlay like an AI chatbot, which effectively says like, hey, so tell me where you live and what you're trying to do and we can work out how to get it. Because I think your point around 
rebate versus tax credit or is it a scrappage scheme is it a is it you know what are the things you'd have to do to qualify actually can actually really impact on whether or not people end up using the system or not and i want to kind of talk about that in a wider context as well because i think what's happened is you have obviously done this and you've been the, i think the most prominent in this conversation certainly everybody who's ever talked about e-bike subsidies everyone points to denver and says oh yeah yeah have you heard about this it's like sells out in 10 minutes or something like this but you know how else have you thought about it like are there, are there other programs that you've kind of ever explored i mean obviously you went for rebate have you ever looked at for example things like sales tax exemptions or subscription services or scrappage or anything at all Okay, well, sales tax exemptions, I don't, my agency wouldn't have control over that. Right. And so that I, and I also think that would have to go through city council. And so if it actually, that might actually, like I said earlier, that actually might have to go to a vote of the people. So I think the, the bar for that getting passed is much, much higher. So I think it depends on your jurisdiction as to, you know, what kind of flexibility you have and, and what makes sense in your context. So that one we have not looked at. One thing that, first off, I love the idea of your tracker. And I think what would also be really interesting is if you can include, if you can end up getting data on the number of people who are using it or the number of uh, e-bikes that are purchased or funded in that way, that will be very interesting because won't it be interesting to see like which are more successful, like are tax credits more successful and who are they reaching? Are rebates more successful? Who are they reaching? So keep adding to it. That is really good point. I will work out how to get that research done because I think that's, I think that's super relevant, right? Right. Because I mean, having the information is good, but then what we what we as policymakers need to know is, I love the idea of getting ideas from others, right? We, we all want to do that. We just want to know like, well, how is it working? And what, you know, what were your lessons learned and, and what works best? So I, I love the idea of that for information sharing. Now, one, one new idea that just caught my eye last week is actually right here in Colorado. So our state legislature is in session right now and our governor has made a proposal. So it's not law yet, but there's going to be a proposal going to the state legislature, which has a number of different tax credits and other financial mechanisms to encourage uh, electrified mobility in general. So it includes new tax credits in state for electric vehicles, but also the first tax credit for e-bikes. But listen to this. If I read it correctly, the tax credit would actually go to the bike shop for reducing the cost of their of the e-bikes that they sell to consumers. So it's a way of, it's like a prebate. Huh, um, interesting. Right? Because it goes to the shop and incentivizes the shop to reduce their costs, which makes it more accessible to consumers. So again, that was just proposed here, but I think that's very interesting. And if it does get passed in our legislature, I definitely think that other states should look at that. Because again, like what we're finding, I think that the barrier to entry for consumers is that upfront cost. So anything that we can do to reduce it upfront is going to be more effective than rebating it on the back end. Yes. Yeah, yeah, completely. The the other one that I, you know, your point around the cost of the e-bikes is really high at the beginning has always been, has always signaled to me that like there's a real opportunity there. I mean, part of the reason that I think the shared systems did really well in the beginning is because you could get access to something that otherwise you'd never go out and buy. Like I wouldn't spend $1,500 on a scooter, but I'd be happy to pay $3 to ride it for five minutes around a town. And what we've seen is that that model ends up naturally constrained in terms of growth because those things are, you know, they sit around in, in, in the public realm and people get annoyed with them. And everyone wants to push the scooters over. So, but what we've seen is that the subscription services, which say, hey, you can get an access to a bike, but it's $45 a week or $50 a week, or Unagi who do scooters for $50 a week, that that actually ends up being really compelling as a, uh, you don't have the upfront cost, but you still have access to it over time and you can build this business around that. And those businesses are doing really well, but I still don't see them being subsidized because even $50 a week, you know, might be okay if you run, you know, your average family with, you know, running two cars or something like that. You sort of, that's what you might cost you to fill up with gas just for one of the cars. But for low-income families, $50 a week is actually really quite expensive. Like it does still put it out of out of reach for them. I can give you another example that speaks to that though. So gosh, in 2020, uh, as part of the COVID Relief Act, right? It was called the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. um, we actually received $300,000 and we used that to partner with an EV, or I'm sorry, partner with a local car share company called Colorado Car Share. They already had a couple of electric vehicles in their fleet. We used that money to help them purchase seven 
new electric vehicles. Uh, we, the city, put in the charging stations to go with them because they're there. We actually put them in the public way so they could both charge the car share car, but also be available to the public. But then we used a portion of the money to subsidize memberships for 450 people. And so we paid that to Colorado Car Share, and then they had a special application for lower income households to apply for memberships. And so they were automatically discounted or given a discount. And so you can imagine the same thing in the subscription program you're talking about. Again, a local government would need to, or you know, a nonprofit agency, whoever, I guess, would need to partner up with that subscription service. And that subscription service would need to be able to provide a mechanism so that lower income households can provide proof of income, can get that reduced cost membership, but then still have complete access to the vehicles. Yes. Yeah. I can totally see uh, models like that uh, coming along. There's one example that uh, it's actually, uh, so Lug & Carry, who's a company that, that uh, is based in Australia, have been doing this with, so they have turn. Uh, GSDs, they rent them out and for families, but they ended up going to councils and saying, hey, if you want to help particular schools uh, develop into like e-bike cluster schools, then we'll bring the bikes, we'll bring 20 bikes, you just pay us for the kind of the rental for a month. And then what they found is that they had for, for an $8,000 spend, 40 families got to try these out. And at the end of it, 20 families just like on average the opt-in was like 50 to 60 percent oh, that's awesome would just continue on with the program and what but what but then you know then they can cycle the bikes around and then they can do it with a whole range of others so for an eight thousand dollar spend you end up with like quite a high level of impact and i that's the that's where i think there's like potential for really good spend but you need those companies to be able to be there like you know you can't will that into experience. I think that sounds really interesting. And I think we would like to know more about that because we actually, we presented an opportunity in early last year. So 2022, we put on RFP so that organizations like say, like a low-income housing block, right? A low-income housing building, their management company could have applied to us for funding to purchase e-bikes that their residents could use. Yeah, interesting. Right, so they can come and go. We didn't have any takers. And it wasn't just aimed at them, right? It was aimed at any kind of nonprofit, human service provider, community-based organization. And I, you know, we have to wonder, is the idea of owning and maintaining a fleet of electric bikes a little much for some of these organizations? And would a subscription service like what you're talking about be a better fit, but still work through those organizations where we access the people who need the help? Totally. I I, I mean, I think the other thing, and and I want to challenge you a little bit on that, like the low-income thing as well, is that there's a whole bunch of families who are, you know, there's a, I think what happens is that oftentimes e-bikes get lumped in with like low income thing, mm. uh, low income transport. And I think there's an element of how do we think about this as a status thing? Because if I, if I look at like who the families are, who are in my city, who ride around on turn GSTs, it's like, they are not the low income families. They are the doctors, they are the lawyers, they are the accountants. No. And they look at it and say, I do this because this is the smartest way around. And there's an status element of turning up to school on this really sweet bike with a you know kid on the back and and I know that they may not need the support the financial support but there's still a nudge element to it and a behavior change element to it yes. that can really work there and I I'm I'm always interested in that element like how can government be effectively going okay do we want to just allow the market to work this out and status will sort itself out or do we just say we're going to nudge it in particular directions we think this is a good thing it should exist and if you know it ends up being that you've got a bunch of kind of well-off families who do it but it changes the conversation and the culture around this, then actually like net, net, that's a really positive thing. I don't know how you think about that. Well, sure. I mean, I, I mean, and take a look at our program, of course, we have, I mean, half of our vouchers were not income qualified, yes. right? They're just the, the standard voucher. So we certainly are subsidizing this cost for people who don't necessarily need that subsidization, but it does help move the market. So we certainly are open to that. You know, going back to the rules of our fund, we do have a mandate that at least 50% of the dollars do have to go towards the people who are most climate vulnerable and who are most harmed by climate change impacts. And we understand those to, to include households that have low incomes or communities where the majority of people have low incomes, include, and of course, others as well, right? Black, Indigenous, people of color, mm-hmm. people with disabilities, uh, people living with chronic health, health conditions as well. So we're certainly open to that. I think, though, we, we as a government, our, in our particular case, because we have this mandate, 
if one of our programs were found to be really benefiting only higher income uh, households, that would definitely be a problem for us because we have this mandate. But we would set up our program from the beginning to ensure that everybody would have access to it. So we're, again, I think we're certainly interested in learning more about these subscription programs. I don't think I've seen that here in Denver, but maybe I'm just not aware. Not yet. Uh, I think they're coming. Okay. Is my is my understanding. All right. Yeah, and I mean the other the other thing that I've also seen and that I'm very curious as to whether or not that's you've seen it mentioned in the US is the scrappage schemes. So in Europe, it's quite common. Like they've got one in London, they've got one in Italy, and one in uh, Lyon, in France. And so if you give them your old car, they'll give you a thousand euros. They'll effectively buy mm. you and they'll buy you a new electric bike. Which for a whole bunch of people, I think, has been a very compelling way to get a new electric bike. They'll just go out and get an old crappy car and trade it in. So, yeah, I haven't seen that with bikes yet. You know, in the U.S., we had um, a cash for clunkers program back in under the Obama administration. Obama, yeah, that's right. And that wasn't just for electric vehicles, though. I think that was for... A- I think there were efficiency levels. And I mentioned the state legislation uh, here that was looking at, you know, again, it hasn't passed yet, but it has a very similar incentive. But in this case, it is specifically for electric vehicles. So it's a cash for clunkers, but only for the purchase of a new electric vehicle. I haven't seen it yet for e-bikes. It's certainly an interesting concept that uh, as a city, we wouldn't be doing that, right? Because we don't, we're not the ones that, I don't know. I don't, I, it would be odd for that. I don't think that's one of our policy levers. It does seem to be more of a state uh, issue, mm-hmm. but as policymakers, we're always interested to see what's possible. Totally, totally. I mean, I think that's that makes makes a lot of sense. The I'm very curious. So you mentioned, you know, you're not the you don't deal with the big eye infrastructure around. Well, we're not in charge of it. I should say it's not that we don't deal with it, but our agency is not the one that makes those decisions. Yeah, the the obviously you've got a kind of a ramp up of e bikes. One of the things that I I think is fascinating watching the space quite closely is that. The conversation around infrastructure, especially around things like bike lane, providing safe infrastructure for people to ride, et cetera, there's, a, there's a, oftentimes the debate, it's like, oh, look, that's really expensive infrastructure. You need to shift a bunch of curbs, expensive, blah, 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 blah. And there's been a long history of people building bike lanes that never get used. And what I mm-hmm. think is always interesting, and, and I heard this argument actually from a, uh, from a council. So in New Zealand, where I live, there's a friend of mine and she's been doing some work with the council and the national transport agency to do e-bikes for like low income and low income uh, communities, similar to what you have been exploring. And her point was, look, there's so much demand here. If we can work out how to get some of the stuff met, all of a sudden we'll just overwhelm the roads with all these e-bikes. Like that's how the system will work. And then we'll be forced to build the infrastructure to cater to this. And I was like, this is already happening. Like we are with the growth rates for e-bikes and e-scooters, et cetera, is sort of anywhere from 30 to 50% a year. Like the conversation around infrastructure should be let's build the infrastructure for the fastest growing mode of transport you know i'm curious have you and the impact of your program kind of fed into conversations around new infrastructure build out like how is denver for for e-bikes sorry for for for, um bike lanes well i think that you know denver denver like many cities has had a long-term strategy to to install more bike lanes around town i think that the I don't know that that conversation has necessarily changed with e-bikes. I think there have been a few people who have brought up to me that maybe e-bikes need their own type of bike lane because they're too fast and they overwhelm, you know, the regular folks on regular bikes. And I mean, in a, in a pro way, right? Like that we should consume more of the roadway with more bike lanes. I think that the, for me, I feel like the conversation around bike lanes these days has much more to do with the type of bike lane putting in less about the volume of traffic on them that if we really want more people to use the bike lanes include or to ride their bikes whether it's e-bikes or traditional bikes that we need more protected bike lanes mm-hmm. and so you know denver's certainly looking at that but i think we also have to follow where the cyclists go right so for myself on my route when i bike to work it's 10 miles and i'm on a combination of regular, just a regular shared bike lane, right? Like a Shero, a protected bike lane. And then what we call a neighborhood bikeway, which is simply a very quiet street that doesn't have a bike lane, but that as a cyclist, I know I can travel on it because it's, it's easy and it's uh, very, it feels very safe and and high comfort. So I don't know that our e-bike program has necessarily said where we need to have more bike lanes or that there need to be more bike lane is just more about 
bike lane, cyclist safety in general, how do we provide more high comfort bike lanes or bikeways in the places where people want to go? Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's always this big discussion around this, which is like, what's going to come first, the chicken or the egg? And do we build these things? Are they going to get built? And then we end up with a whole bunch of influx of new vehicles or will it be the other way around? I think it will be, always be the, the, the interplay between the two of them. But I certainly think anything that comes along where we juice the, um, that there is kind of latent demand there for, for e-bikes and we can see that there is, or any of these sort of micromobility vehicles, I think that, that always helps contribute to the conversation and we just need to be telling that story better. I have a couple more questions and I'm conscious of time, but I'll, I'll, sure. I, I reckon we'll get through them. One is that, has there been an element of partisanship around this or because of the way that the program is structured or do you have a kind of predominantly democratic area or something like how has the how has been the party politics around this and the pro and the program yeah denver's a pretty progressive town we yeah. don't really have a lot of partisanship on this or or too many issues uh the only uh griping i would say that came around at the beginning you know certainly there are some folks in the media who always, you know, have some commentary on whether or not government should be spending money on things. The only complaint that I heard was, well, people are going to get these bikes and they're just going to sit around their garage and they're not going to use them. Yeah. And, you know, then we have our survey results, which show that that's not the case. Like we believe that that wasn't the case in the, you know, in the first place. And I think our, our data is showing that that is not the case. So no, I wouldn't say I have not seen any partisanship around this issue here. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other is that the, so the bikes that you have that are, so did you have any kind of particular standards? Sorry, I should have asked this question right in the beginning when, it, when we were talking about the bikes uh, that, that were part of that program, but did you have any particular standards around them needing to be certified to any particular level or was like, no, just any bike that is sold in an e-bike or like a, in a bike shop? So no UL certified or anything like that. Yeah, we do. We do prohibit the um, like electric mountain bikes. Like there's a certain type of it's a certain level of bike that it's a more it's more for recreation. <laughs> so those aren't allowed. But other than that, no, we don't have we don't have standards. I think that you know, unfortunately, one thing that is uh, has been brought up a couple times is that maybe we need to require uh, e bikes that have UL rated batteries. Yeah, yeah that's same sweet conversation. Um, no one has actually demanded that of us yet, but I think that certainly that's coming more to our attention. Um, but we have not created any requirements around bikes yet. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting one. I I've just uh, I did an interview last week with Melinda Hansen, who used to be head of sustainability at Bird, and now does is working with firms that uh, micro mobility firms around lobbying because the conversation in New York is very much all e bikes and sold in New York are going to have to be UL certified coming in, and that, that's a safety thing because they have really high density and the bike a lot of the bikes that are sold sold with batteries that like to catch on fire. So you know, yeah, I think and yeah, the, New York is a really important subject because. It is out of context. It makes it seem like, well, every e-bike is getting ready to explode, and that isn't the case. Yes. But but that kind of nuance just doesn't ever get talked about in the media, and even if it did, it's not really what people are interested in. So I think certainly we are keeping an eye on the conversation in New York City, and I think that that will have a big it'll have a big influence on the market no matter what. Yes. Yeah. I do think that too, and the the interesting thing is, I think it will just end up defaulting to the UL standard for the most of the US because it'll be New York, and everyone else will just say, "Oh yeah, that's well, likely." Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. which is which is a pity because it actually does. You know, I think this is one of the things about UL certification is that it's just more expensive. Like you end up with bikes that are more expensive, which is in part like why you need more subsidies. I think in my in my view. Is like, yeah, cool. We're happy to be, as an industry, I think it should be like, yeah, we are happy to adhere to standards, but this needs to be also provided with some level of subsidy or support because we also recognize that like they don't, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come from these programs or from these vehicles and they need to be kind of supported, especially when we're supporting the auto industry to, to such a large extent with its transitions to electric vehicles and these vehicles offer, offer like a lot of the same benefit. Sure. I mean, it's hard for me to, to comment because I actually don't know what it costs for a manufacturer to become UL certified and how to do that. For, like, is it just for the batteries or for each model of bike? I don't know what that impact is, but I know that here in Denver, we clearly have not saturated 
the interest level yet, right? We have not hit peak interest in e-bikes. Yes. And so as long as our funding continues, I think we will continue to fund this program. And I think only when we would see the peak drop off at some point would we think about dialing back. Yeah, yeah. Like how do you think about the market demand for the program? Like, Oh, well, gosh. So we just, we... Um, relaunched again in January. Yeah. We actually changed our standard rebate amount. So the standard this year is $300. The income qualified rebate stayed at $1,200. The e-cargo bike rebate actually dropped from $500 to $200. And you know why? Over the course of last year, as we looked at the prices of the e-cargo bikes, it turns out that the average cost difference between a standard e-bike and an e-cargo bike was much lower. It was mm. less than $250. Wow. And so that $500 rider just wasn't, it wasn't moving the market. It wasn't necessary. So anyway, we relaunched in January. I think it was January 30th or 31st. And yeah, as you mentioned earlier, it sold out in minutes, less than 20 minutes. And in that time, 7,000 people started the application. We had just under wow. we had just under 900 rebates to give, but 7,000 people started the application. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> so, and we, we don't have that we don't have that amount of money, you know, per year or the amount of money per year to fund 7,000 e-bikes, but the demand is still there. It's still very high. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I I would love to see what a federal scheme like this would look like, uh, Grace. What? Yes, and it had been talked about here in the U.S., wasn't it? It was during the um the discussion of the Inflation Reduction Act. There was for a minute talk about a tax credit for e-bikes, and that went by the wayside, from what I understand. But you know, our our program hadn't been well publicized yet, so maybe they just hadn't heard. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe yes. maybe now that we're on the map. Indeed. Uh, that our legislators will give a closer look to it because clearly there's demand. It's something that consumers want. So why why wouldn't we want to help fund that? And it's certainly, my gosh, in terms of bang for your buck, I think you get, oh my gosh, I was about to say you get a lot of mileage <laughs> out of out of an e-bike rebate. You do? Or e-bike e tax credit. If that's all the government could do, we would make that work. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, uh, look, I hope that I, in being able to help you tell the story, that maybe we'll get uh, a little bit more uh, interest in this and, and, and we do it. Yes. So for folks who want to learn more about this, the best place to go is? Well, obviously there's our website, yes. um, but all, you, all you'd have to do is choose your favorite search engine and, and just type in Denver e-bikes. Yes. And uh, every time I've typed that in, our website comes up first. And then you can find us on social. Our handle is at Denver Casser, which is C-A-S-R. So at Denver Casser, you can find us there as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, hey, Grace, just thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, explain, and and uh, and really help me out with understanding this space. It was a pleasure being on your program. And I, I do hope that other cities and states and jurisdictions will hear about this and consider doing it. It's yeah. very popular. It is. Marvelous. Excellent. Okay. Well, looking forward to having you back on at some point in the future when you run the federal program for uh, the U.S. Oh, right. Excellent. Okay. Thanks so much. <laughs> no worries. 